0: to Opinionated Science, a podcast from Technology Networks. I'm Rory McKenzie, a science writer at Technology Networks. And on this podcast, our team of scientists, turned journalists, discuss the weird and wonderful science that we cover every day. Today's podcast is on a topic that meets that definition of weird and wonderful perfectly. Biohacking. This form of DIY biology has ruffled a lot of feathers in the research community. But the idea of making science something that doesn't have to be conducted in a lab where knocking over a rack of bottles can rack up $30,000 in damage is certainly an intriguing one. Furthermore, there's been talk of biohacking being used in the context of COVID-19 research, and as such, it seems like it's a good time to take a closer look at what biohacking is and whether or not it has potential to move research forward or just damage research in the eyes of the public. To help do that, I'm joined today by my colleague Molly Campbell. How are you, Molly?
1: Hi, Rory. Well, aside from melting in the heat wave that we're currently having, I am well.
0: Yeah, I'm uh, I'm slightly further north of Molly, so I'm currently quite smug, but I think it is starting to raise the mercury here as well slightly, so uh, hopefully we'll we'll be able to survive the heat for the length of this podcast. <laughs> uh, Molly's is Tien's genomics editor. And she's covered biohacking for some time, even interviewing biohackers who conduct gene editing in their garage. And I'm very excited to hear what they had to say in those interviews. Perhaps Molly, you could start us off by introducing what exactly biohacking is.
1: I can definitely try, Rory. The issue with biohacking is there isn't sort of a strict definition. Um, there's quite a lot of loose definitions out there of what it is um, and what the field represents. It's it's quite subjective. So for some people, biohacking means to optimise and to optimise their own biology. So you could kind of look as that, look at that as if someone decided to take their health into their own hands. Um, so an example of biohacking could be maybe an individual decides that they want to take over 60 supplements a day to try and control their biological age. So I'm using real life examples here, or perhaps injecting a younger person's blood into their own to try and sort of rejuvenate their cells. For other people, biohacking is a little bit more broad and applies to sort of doing science outside of a traditional environment. So when we think of science, we probably think of academia, we think of industry. Um, and we know that in in these sorts of spaces there are lots of regulations and lots of sort of hierarchies that people have to go through in their career so there are admittedly a lot of different barriers in science so in this sense biohacking can be an individual that decides to do science by their own means and often this can mean doing scientific experience experiments on themselves so these are the types of biohackers that often gain sort of the most um shall we say uh attention or notoriety they're working the outside <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> so they're working outside of these traditional lab spaces and institutions and they're basically working on their own bodies so rory have you heard of transhumanism
0: i have not molly could you tell me what it is
1: Yeah, so it's a term I actually only recently came across. So um, it's, it's classed as a movement and it's basically described quite loosely as being an idea of that sort of human species in its current form doesn't represent the end of our development, but rather it's a comparatively early phase. And in this sense, biohacking kind of falls under that umbrella term as being a component of transhumanism which is quite an interesting perspective, I think.
0: I see. So this is why, why my lower back hurts. I just think if only my spine were made of titanium and I had no nerve endings there. Human evolution's rubbish.
1: Precisely. So a lot of people kind of in sort of the research that I've done, a lot of people view biohacking in this way and one of the critiques of biohacking from that perspective is the idea that we are essentially kind of viewing human beings, human bodies, as a machine essentially, which I just think is quite an interesting concept. Um, I think there's a lot of books out there on transhumanism, so um, if our listeners maybe want to go and have a, a nosy around we could look for some examples.
0: I think um, yeah it, it does seem like a really broad area so perhaps it'd be good to talk to one of these biohackers to uh, get their definition of it but luckily you already have so perhaps you could tell us a bit about your conversations with Josiah Zader who is definitely one of these notorious biohackers we, we mentioned earlier.
1: Absolutely so I spoke to Josiah it was last year now and um, Admittedly he was quite difficult to track down for an interview but once I caught his attention um, he was really sort of receptive to speaking to me so we had a call and I was just I'd, I'd not really learned much about the biohacking field prior to speaking with Josiah but it was something that being the genomics writer at TN I was doing a lot of research into CRISPR and a particular experiment of Josiah's came up to my attention and really kind of baffled me so I really wanted to learn a little bit more about that and I'll get on to exactly what that was shortly. So Josiah is a really interesting character he he walked away from a position at NASA um, in their synthetic biology program um, where he was working on genetically engineering organisms to sort of help with space travel and he quit NASA to start his own company called the Odin. Um, So Odin is essentially a company that sells various sort of bits and bobs that basically can be accumulated to form a kit to be able to do bioengineering um in essentially your garage at home um so an example of some of the products that I'm aware that they sell are things sort of like bioengineering 101 beginner kit um which if you purchase it it I believe comes with sort of video lectures and um actually says that there is no scientific experience needed to use it.
0: Which I think What can you uh, what can you make with bioengineering one oh one?
1: There's all sorts. So a couple of options that I saw was you can turn your beer um, into a fluorescent colour using genetically engineered yeast which is interesting. I'm not sure if it's still on the site but at the time that I was researching for the article there was the option to purchase frogs, I do believe, um, to run some home experiments. Don't quote me on that but from what I recall that's, that's sort of the kind of products that you were looking at.
0: You imagine like a late night lock-in down the pub <laughs> with fluorescent beer, that'd be awesome. <laughs>
1: Turning all the lights off. You don't need a (laughs) strobe light then, do you? Exactly, yeah. Everyone get the pints in. Um, So I was really curious as to why Josiah decided to step away from NASA. Um, And to quote, he told me, the whole system is set up to encourage people to do research that nobody really cares about. The science that we all really want, things like invisibility cloaks and lightsabers and spaceships, that stuff doesn't really get worked on. Instead, we get people who study how fruit flies have sex and stuff like that. I think that really needs to change.
0: I mean, as someone who loves Star Wars and has spent a fair amount of time in a cell biology lab, I guess he's not wrong in a way, but (laughs) ouch, you know? Exactly. Very cutting.
1: Yeah, it's straight to the point, isn't it? So, Zainer kind of emphasizes and did so throughout our conversation that he believes science can contribute more to humanity if there was more freedom in what scientists are able to work on. Um so to sort of emphasize just how sort of far a biohacker might want to go, Zainer did do an, an experiment that could be considered quite extreme by some people. So CRISPR. Now, for our listeners that are not familiar with CRISPR, we can link some um, articles in the show notes to sort of give a better description. But very briefly, CRISPR is a system um, that can be harnessed to create edits in our DNA. It's quite a simplistic system. And due to this reason, it's quite cheap and is quite easily sort of attainable for the equipment to be able to conduct CRISPR experiments. So Josiah quite famously conducted a CRISPR experiment on himself which garnered quite a lot of attention. So he basically targeted the gene myostatin which creates the protein myostatin which this protein suppresses sort of skeletal muscle development and growth in mammals. So the idea behind this experiment which I can add he filmed live, um, is that by editing this gene you could potentially look to have sort of greater muscle volume, muscle growth. So that's what he did, injected himself with CRISPR um, and broadcasted the experiment, which you can imagine garnered quite a lot of concern across the scientific community. What are your thoughts on that, Rory? I'm really interested. I've I've told quite a few people, sort of, um, just in general day to day conversation about this sort of experiment that aren't in science, and they kind of, it really shocked them. Are you shocked?
0: Well, I mean, a, a little bit. I think what I find most intriguing is the idea of the idea of of, of the basic aspect of CRISPR, as as he's described it, is making this a chunk of DNA with, with its, its modifiers attached and then sort of injecting it into yourself, but as I think we'll have a chance to discuss more in the podcast, I feel there's a big difference between that as a basic unit of of what the science is involved in a CRISPR experiment and what might go into, say, a, a published paper. It's not just about the, the one single experiment in which something's injected, there's so much uh, review, there's so much Uh, corresponding experiments that have to go into a paper like this and and backups and checks and you know the idea of statistical power is also there as well. Uh, I've seen a few uh, interviews with Josiah now in addition to the the one you conducted and he does respond to some of these these aspects by saying you know there are there are papers that will make it into nature or science that are case studies and just have a an n number of, of how many patients there are in the study of one but at the same time, these in general tend to have some pretty sophisticated uh, experimentation going on and they use a lot of kits. So um, I'm I'm interested to hear what happened when he did this and, and whether or not there were any I mean, was he sort of flexing flexing his huge bicep on, on one arm as he as he talked to you about this?
1: Unfortunately, no. I, I didn't get a glimpse of any any biceps. Um I did ask him though. Um so he told me that, after sort of completing the injection live, he waited some time and um decided to measure the circumference of his arm to see if it had increased. And he did some home genetic tests to see if he could detect any changes in his DNA. And um, he told me that he hadn't seen any growth in his arm, and that also the tests to detect any specific changes in the DNA were inconclusive. And to my understanding, that is, um, sort of something that stands to be true now based on the recent interviews I can find with Zena. Um, He does, I have noticed over recent sort of perhaps the last year or so he seems to be a little bit less inclined to speak to the press about his uh, projects but I see. yeah okay. so inconclusive would be the key summary.
0: I um, I listened recently to a, an episode of the Guardian's Science Weekly podcast in which mm-hmm. Uh, they had had on and they also had a a researcher from London on as well to kind of uh, see what her opinion was on on his research and she was a little bit skewering. I think her main criticism was that CRISPR has enough problems when it's done in million dollar pharmaceutical labs and, and as I understand it anyway CRISPR still has a lot of problems with you know we don't have uh, therapies reliably based on on CRISPR that we can count on to mm-hmm. to realize its full potential, right? I mean, the idea of buying CRISPR is, in theory, a very magical idea that you can use this system we've nicked off bacteria to to change the basics of your of your genetics, but it's certainly not been realized in these expensive settings. So it kind of makes sense that in someone's garage, you probably wouldn't be able to do it either. But um, I think, I think, what, what do you think about the idea that biohacking is something that the people that are doing it clearly want to be pioneers and to, to lead the movement, but it, it seems more to me that their role, if they have a role in the scientific process, should be to increase access to science that's already been validated in these academic settings. So we know it's, it's good science at that point. Surely that's where their, their role is in, in bringing it out to people.
1: I think there are so many different angles that you can kind of look at this. I think a big sort of focus for me is understanding the motivation behind biohackers and I think there are sort of definitely different motivations for different people and as I said previously sort of the definition of biohacking is quite broad. So I know I've read several media reports that have stated sort of Josiah Zainer, for example, he has suffered health problems in the past and he's found it extremely frustrating that there are sort of therapies in development that take such a long period of time to pass over through the multiple, you know, rigorous phases of clinical trials, approval processes to actually be able to reach parents. And he mentions this quite frequently in his interviews. And um, when we get into the coronavirus sort of aspect of this conversation, I'll touch on this more. But he does seem to work from both an element of curiosity and clear passion for science. You know, he's he's clearly a really, really intelligent man, but there does seem to be an undertone of perhaps frustration and yearning for sort of a bit of perhaps more inclusive inclusivity in sort of science research, uh, the development of novel therapeutics. So I think definitely looking at these motivations behind biohacking is an interesting aspect and as I say there are other motivations as well you know when we're talking about people that would like to lower their biological age, optimise human health, what are their motivations? Is it a purely sort of selfish kind of motivation? Are they just thinking of themselves? Are they wanting to discover more about the human body how we can optimize it how wider populations can do this i think it's also important to note that biohacking traditionally sort of came from silicon valley which i think is really important um so yeah there's all these different aspects to to view biohacking but i do think that understanding the individual's motivation is really important when you are actually looking at what they are doing sort of in these you know homemade garages etc etc
0: absolutely i i we would love to reference a, a meme somehow in a, a podcast. I'm, I'm definitely not going to include a meme in the show notes, but I did see one that Josiah posted on his Twitter recently, which in a broad sense was alluding to the idea that commercial scientists are not actually interested in science or just, I think it was interested in money and power instead. <laughs> um, but a direct quote I do have from him, which perhaps illustrates that a bit better, is actually one from your interviews in which he said, he feels that you're either a crazy guy, or you're somebody who's very rational. There's no in between, and I think that's a, a kind of good, a good expression of how scientists are viewed more popularly. Right? You either have uh, a scientist from uh, you know uh, popular media in which they're in a lab coat and they're very stern and they're looking mm-hmm. at a petri dish with with great curiosity, or they're like a mad scientist, a Professor Frank. Right? They're um, you know got these these crazy ideas and they're completely on the outside, but perhaps what he's frustrated at is there's no room for for something in between someone that's not backed by an academic institution or a multi-million dollar uh, drug company but also isn't a crackpot that is just coming up with uh, completely outrageous ideas that have no place in in contemporary discussion you know there probably is something in between right
1: yeah I completely agree and I think obviously you think about the fact that he stepped away from a position at NASA. now I don't know about you but I think a lot of children's dreams are to work you know space research it's amazing it's fascinating mm-hmm. clearly there were deep motivations there to walk away from that kind of position so I feel like as much as you know like we've talked about this spectrum kind of from sort of a, a academic research like you said and then someone that is viewed as being more unconventional um where do we where do we place the biohacker on that sort of spectrum if they have you know these academic credentials as well from the past it's it's really hard it's really interesting
0: because of course you have other individuals that call themselves biohackers but i presume the the things they're they're proposing you know are designed either not to work or have had no effort being put into making them work i mean anyone who watches any of Josiah's videos, and I'm sure we can link one in the in the show notes, we'll see, regardless of what else you think of him, that the guy's convinced what he's doing will have a good shot at working. You know, he's not doing this half-heartedly. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, surely a biohacker that has no regulation and has no moral compass that just wants to make money is is probably quite a dangerous individual. And I think it's possibly a good time now to to think about biohacking in the context of COVID, because you know there's a a worldwide race to develop vaccine and other effective therapies for the coronavirus pandemic and biohackers have definitely joined in that race and I believe Molly you've uh, recently had a look at some of what Josiah in particular and and other biohackers are are doing in the context of Covid What, what have they been looking into?
1: Yeah so I'm sort of focusing on Josiah here on the basis that in the broad sense, he is classed as being kind of one of the leaders of the biohacking, shall we say, movement, um, and he's he's very vocal about this. So there was an article um, published by Bloomberg, which we can include in the show notes, um, in which... Josiah basically said after a paper came out from Harvard regarding a DNA-based vaccine for coronavirus, um, had proven quite promising in some non-human primate model experiments that he actually wanted to essentially try this on himself. So to do so, he. my understanding is He has essentially ordered the DNA, it is actually quite easy to order DNA online Um, and his plans are to test the vaccine on himself and he's actually got some friends involved that are wanting to sort of join in with the experiment. Um, So he's been able to do this by Sorry, to expand on what I said earlier, he's ordered from a DNA synthesis company the um, spike protein sequence. So, spike protein um, is part of the coronavirus construct that enables its entry into host cells. So, he's ordered um, the DNA the DNA sequence for the spike protein, so that he can essentially recreate the virus. Uh, sorry, recreate the vaccine um, and do a home test, basically. Now. I found this absolutely fascinating on the basis that I've seen from the coronavirus vaccine coverage that is in the media. So many people that are saying, you know, if there was a vaccine available today, I'd, I'd try it. I'd give it a go, regardless of what testing has been done on it. People are obviously desperate because these are really extraordinary times. So I just found it absolutely fascinating that someone was out there saying, do you know what? Yep, I'm going to do this. It, it just kind of blew my mind a little bit. So I reached out to Josiah um, based on the fact that obviously I'd spoken to him last year um, and I, I wanted to maybe follow up and chat to him about his research that he's doing in the context of coronavirus. However, I didn't receive a response, but in true investigative journalism fashion, I was on, <laughs> um, I was on Twitter last night and um, Josiah was actually doing a live video stream um, where he was talking about sort of the biohacking movement um, and coronavirus and the vaccines that are in development Um he made quite a few strong statements there um, and he also emphasised after my um, undercover sort of persona was broken and he did in fact realise he remembered who I was from our interview last year when I proposed a question to him. Revealed. Yeah I was busted Um he he mentioned that he'd been trying not to speak to journalists since the original Bloomberg article came out on the basis that in his own words he wants to be able to have people hear him and his own voice and not have it interpreted by somebody else. He wants people to be able to interact directly with him um, so that if in his own words again you hear Josiah say something stupid then you know that it came from him directly. (laughs) Uh, He did say I could quote him on that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so, I asked him about the research and sort of biohackers in in the context of COVID-19. Now he was a little bit vague with the sort of fine details of what he's doing, um, but I, I just thought I'd give you a sort of a bit of a quote of what he said. So he started with, here's the thing with biohacking, people who are actually into biohacking are scientists. Scientists aren't just into science when there's a global pandemic or anything. There are people who have dedicated many, many years of their lives and thousands of dollars towards biohacking. I think coronavirus has inspired people to do biohacking, but I also think in general that biohacking is a form of science. It might not be the form that most people are familiar with, and maybe not even a form that most people agree with. Some people might argue that it's not even real science, which I'm okay with. I'm not bothered about being associated with academic science. It doesn't hurt my feelings. But I think biohacking will continue to grow from this. So that's sort of a general comment about how the pandemic might influence biohacking. And then he went on to specify a little bit more about the coronavirus experiment. And in his own words, it was basically <laughs> the perfect setup is what he said. So he said the reason we decided to do this coronavirus experiment was that it just seemed too perfectly set up. you so. mean by that? he says that essentially the paper came out from Harvard about the DNA vaccine that had worked in non-human primates and these are his words again and you're just like wow they did this experiment it works in non-human primates which is the greatest pre-clinical data you can get I wonder if it works in humans as a scientist I think that would be that would be the most logical question that any scientist would ask so how do you find out I could do it by getting a ton of money doing a clinical trial and all this stuff that can take months or years or I could do all of this stuff and say hey I'm gonna see if it actually works now by that I mean he's sort of nodding to the idea of doing the the home experiment mm-hmm.
0: Um,
1: and so he kind of continued talking there and basically kind of rooted away from the the original question but he did make a point of saying that after this experiment there are lots more projects in the pipeline so that will be interesting. But yeah what what are your thoughts Rory on home testing of a coronavirus vaccine?
0: Ooh, there's a lot of aspects to this Molly. Yeah initially my first question was wow that sounds super illegal how is he allowed to do that mm. but interestingly in that Bloomberg article which I have had a look through as well mm-hmm. um, they quote a a law professor called Patricia Zettler, who was also on the Guardian Science podcast I mentioned earlier, also talking about the legality of Josiah's experiments. So I imagine she's sort of contacted on a near weekly basis, people asking, <laughs> what, what has he done now? Is this one legal? Uh, we should have her on. I know, exactly. What she said was, as long as the company only provides information about how to make a DIY vaccine rather than distributing the materials needed to make one, Zeno's efforts do not fall strictly under the regulatory purview of the Food and Drug Administration. Mm-hmm. So it's it's quite interesting that there's this, this gap here because we've re- reported a lot on coronavirus vaccines here at TN, and Molly, who's also a biopharma editor, has, has led a lot of that coverage. And the, the most promising ones, whether they're in um, the UK, the US or China, all have loads and loads of data behind them and, and part of the essential process of developing a vaccine is going through the stages of the clinical trial. Now very recently Molly you wrote an article about a Russian vaccine which has now been announced as I think they're calling it Sputnik yeah. uh, presumably after the, the satellite that was launched and they're, they're saying that um, you know this is the, the, the example of the, the first successful vaccine and we're now going to be able to trial on people but I think as you reported there's no phase three data available and that is the key phase in which it's trialled on a large number of people to work out whether it's effective or not and honestly in, in my opinion for an opinionated science I'm quite able to say this I'm quite critical of that approach to, to release a vaccine um, and say you know this is this is ready and ready to go without having done the proper clinical trial stages you know these are these are stages that aren't unique to one country. They're pretty much globally accepted as being the way that you develop a vaccine. And I feel it would be hypocritical of me not to feel the same about Josiah's expert, uh, efforts. Mm-hmm. Now, vaccine development in particular is this really thorny area because, as we all know, efforts to oppose vaccines and suspicion about vaccines has caused a lot of damage to scientific credibility over the last 20 years. and. I worry that if a vaccine, whether it's from Russia, whether it's from a guy in the West Coast of the United States in his garage, was to were to release a vaccine and it were to be ineffective because the from research has been done to or not enough research has been done to to develop it, that it would be called cause untold damage to the confidence of the public in in uh, whether or not a vaccine is something that's effective and whether or not it's something that um, people should get. Um, you know, my opinion is, of course, as a as a former scientist and someone who's read a lot about um, the vaccines that if it is properly tested, it's gone through the stages and it is approved, then absolutely it's the, the right thing to do is to get a vaccine to coronavirus. But, um, you know, I worry that these kind of efforts could potentially undermine the the efforts that are actually going through the, the right stages. I don't know what you think.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. You know, there is a growing um, anti vax movement, um, which I mean, the World Health Organization listed anti-vaccination as one of the biggest threats to global health in 2019. You know, it's no secret that there are sort of, there are issues when it comes to vaccination, as you say, and I am of the same opinion as you, Rory, being a scientist in the past and, you know, reading so much about vaccines now, if a coronavirus vaccine became available to me, I would have one, but I can understand from another individual's perspective how if for example something really terrible happened in the testing of these vaccines whereby someone has gone down the route that is not sort of traditional doesn't align with the food and drug administration or the EMA um, and the results were bad um, you can understand completely how that might how might it might contribute to sort of an underlying feeling of insecurity or sort of worry about having a vaccine against coronavirus and it's really tricky because things like this obviously i mean we're talking about today they they are in the media so it's quite easy to get hold of these these stories when they do happen Mm -hmm. so i think there is a huge amount of responsibility that lies with these individuals that are Sort of doing these home experiments and also vocalizing about them too. Um, so, yeah, I, I really agree with you that I think there are some sort of really risky risky moves being taken here.
0: I'd say that on a fundamental basis, the idea that you can bring science and scientific techniques to a wider population is a really noble one, and from the interview I've read with yourself and Josiah, that seems to be one of his prime motivations is making access to science easier. And I did have a look at these materials that he's been distributing around uh, his DIY COVID vaccine. And what struck me is that the techniques he's teaching are the basic scientific techniques and, you know, the the isolation of the the DNA and, and what you do with a spike protein, for example. That information's there. But what initially from the from the the read I have of it had of it seemed to be missing was okay, it's a wider education about what the scientific process should look like and and the essentially for a, a better word of putting it, the boring stuff around science. Okay, it'd be it'd be so nice if uh we could all just do one experiment and so it worked and whack it in the the number one journal and reap all the rewards. Mm-hmm. But you know, I can I can tell a personal story about this with my own um research background when I was doing a, a master's in um, neuroimmunology, I found that with my experiments, which were essentially aimed at designing a, an, an assay or a, an experiment that um, would enable us to turn one type of immune cell into another kind of immune cell. And that was what I was tasked with doing for this entire year. And throughout the year, I, I, I met failure every time. It was incredibly frustrating. And ultimately, what I found was that it was nothing to do with the, the different components. I was adding to these cells to direct them in this particular um, particular fate. It was in fact the cell culture medium I was bathing these cells in didn't have the right serum involved. Now for people that don't know what, about cell culture this is the equivalent of baking a cake and finding it doesn't rise even though you followed the recipe perfectly only to find out that it's because the bakers wanted you to use an ostrich egg rather than a chicken egg but they just hadn't listed that in the instructions you know. A lot of science isn't obvious it's quite fiddly it's really time demanding. And I feel that part of an education about science and, and inducting people into becoming scientists, whether they're calling themselves biohackers or outsider scientists, part of that induction has to be an education in the the more frustrating and and fiddly aspects of science that are nonetheless really important to making sure the science is high quality and it's mm-hmm. reproducible and that other people can trust in the scientific process you've gone through. And I, I just struggle to believe that without the kind of regulation that academics have in, in academic settings, that biohackers are going to be able to, to keep to that process and, and make sure that people that they're teaching these techniques to will also follow that and create good science from that.
1: Yeah, I completely agree with you, Rory. I think one thing that I would say is I respect the passion. I really, res- I really respect that. And I also, the idea of diversifying science making science more accessible for people. I mean, that's, I don't know about you, that's why I became a journalist because I wanted to be able to write about it, to tell people about it. It's a different sort of aspect, but same, you know, same common cause, I suppose. But like you said, there are so many different aspects to scientific research that you don't necessarily come to grips with unless you are in a lab, unless you are taught and the frustrations as well that I just, I worry especially with sort of you know these kits where it's kind of like a beginner's guide to genetic engineering we still don't know all that much about the impact that you know that there, there are talks of sort of genetically engineering organisms and then those escaping into the environment there's so many sort of patchy areas that we are still not 100% sure on so it kind of makes me a little bit uneasy to think about the idea of somebody sort of in their garage at home doing these experiments, how are they discarding of the items that they've used, you know, their, their scientific waste, things like that, um, which that sort of knocks my confidence in the passion side of things, I, I think.
0: It's the, it's the boring stuff, isn't it? Science, yeah. everyone, it's very cool, but can also be intensely boring at times. You're but right. um, We do always aim to bring you the most weird and wonderful science, but occasionally we do have to mention the uh, fiddling with test tubes and pipettes and taking five hours to do an assay as well. That's, that's also a very important part of it. But um, I think at the risk of our podcast expanding to the length of a genetic engineering assay, I think we should <laughs> probably call time there. But thank you very much, Molly, for giving us your insights on uh, biohacking and, and giving us some of Josiah's quotes in, in perfect, perfect details. It sounds like he'd want. What was it? If uh, if what he said is stupid, then at least it's come from him. Is that right?
1: Precisely. Yep.
0: Precisely. Great. Well, thanks to all our listeners for again tuning into Opinionated Science. And please listen to our podcast. Please share it. And please comment on it. Please don't keep your opinions to yourself. Bye for now.